Really, we're all the same. Sure, some of us have more money, more skill, more brains, or more time than others. But you and I want the same, the same thing. thing. I want to make a difference. I want to make a difference. To have an impact, a huge impact on my family, my community, my world. Now it's time to take that dream and turn it into reality. To use what we do have to accomplish, to accomplish something great. It's time to leave mediocre behind. It's time to leave mediocre behind. Because it doesn't matter how much you have. It's how you use it. The opportunity is before you. The opportunity is before you. But you, you have, have to, to take, take the first, the first step. step. Good morning. And welcome to the, I think, third of our five weekend Easter services. I'm so glad you're here. I know it's crazy weather outside. doesn't feel like Easter, does it? But uh, it, it's just great to see you here. And indeed, wonderful news. Jesus is risen and life is worth living. Jesus said, because I live, you will live also. We're starting a brand new series this weekend, and I'll tell you, we are swimming upstream because the message of this series is a challenging message for our culture and for Christians as well. Um, let, me, let me start by reading a story to you. You know, every once in a while my wife is cooking, she'll just put something on the stove and let it simmer for a while. She's going to use it later, but she just gets it going. So I want to take you to the book of Matthew, chapter 25. I want to read you a story from Jesus, and let's just let it percolate a little bit, and then I'll get back to it. But I want you just start to start thinking about Jesus' story. You know, uh, this being Easter, people think about Jesus, I hope, a whole lot more. And in the artwork that we have for Jesus, he's often presented as sort of this willowy, delicate figure. And I'm afraid that one of the, one of the uh, outgrowths of that presentation of Jesus is that Christianity is sometimes seen as sort of a passive thing. It's sort of, you know, religion is sort of a passive thing. Man, Jesus was a carpenter. I mean, he was, he was a powerful person. He was a person with energy and drive, and he wanted his followers, the men, the women who followed him, to have that same kind of passion. And so when you read this story, I think you'll see what we mean. It's uh, in verse 14 of Matthew 25, Jesus says, again, it, now he's been talking about the kingdom of heaven, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one, he gave five talents of money. Now, a talent, it's interesting, we'll talk about this later, but a talent would be about the equivalent of 30 years' pay for an average worker. To one, he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who'd received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you trusted me with five talents. See, I've gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. The man with the two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I've gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. Then the man who'd received the one talent came. Master, he said, 
I knew that you're a hard man, harvesting where you've not sown and gathering where you've not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew a harvest where I have not sown and gather where I haven't scattered seed? Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the banker so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. Our series, and you've probably already guessed why I picked this title, our series is called You Times Two. Let me ask you a question, a rather personal question. Have you ever suspicioned that there might be more to you? We live in a culture where it's common to sort of get to a place where we accept caps. Caps of personal productivity, caps of, of ability, caps of, of, of achievement. After a while, we sort of feel comfortable with where our caps are. We feel that we have reached our limitation. This is what I'm capable of doing. And then we settle in. I'm not just talking about in the workplace, as you might have immediately gone to. I'm talking about even in family life. We sort of settle in. In dating, we don't feel like we have any caps. When we get married, all of a sudden we have some caps. This is, this is sort of who I am. And then on top of that, the, the person that we're married to often sets caps for us, and we hear people say things like, well, that's my husband. That's who he is. He's not going to change. He's always been that way. He is always going to be that way. He's just like his mother. Um, well, maybe that's just extra. What, what troubles me about myself and about watching the culture that I live in is that we sort of grow comfortable with those things. Have you ever, have you ever, let's just say you've worked on a project or something, maybe even receiving the accolades of your peers, and yet walk away from that and you say to yourself, I could have done so much more. All I'm asking, and, and I don't, you don't have to respond to me, I'm just asking you to respond to yourself. All I'm asking is, have you ever suspicion that there might be talents that you haven't discovered? Have you ever suspicion that maybe there are strengths that you haven't yet tapped into? Have you ever considered that perhaps there may be achievements that you haven't even started yet? My guess is that if we say yes to that question, it's going to come, that yes is going to come in one of two areas. The first of those areas is we would say, yes, I could be more. What I would like to have is more conspicuous consumption. Oh, that's the American way. Yes, I could be more. I could be driving a much nicer car. Yes, I, I could be more. I could be living in a much bigger house. Yes, I could be more. I could be wearing much better clothes. Yes, I could be making lots more money. I could be living in much higher conspicuous consumption. Or is it just possible, and I know this may be the minority of our crowd, I hope not, but it could be that I'm talking to some of you and you're saying, I could be making so much more difference in the world. It'll all come down to how you feel like you got, how you feel like you got here. There are two possibilities, two schools of thought on how we arrived on this planet. The first school of thought that's prevailing in our culture today, at least many people accept this, is that we're the product of an accident. Enough rolls of the cosmic dice, natural selection. Over hundreds of millions of years, maybe billions of years, who knows, there were subtle changes and all of a sudden, voila, here we are. Well, if you believe that, it's going to bear on whether you want to make an impact or whether you want to go just to conspicuous consumption. 
Because let me be academically honest here today. I always try to be honest with you when I stand on this stage. If there is no God, and you and I are the product of random chance, then it naturally follows that there's no such thing as purpose. If we are all products of accidents, there's no purpose. There's no there's nothing to achieve for any reason. It hasn't been that long since our president decorated a Marine posthumously who threw himself on a live grenade in order to save the lives of his two buddies. And we look at that and we say, yeah, if there ever was any act deserving of an award, that act would be it. Jesus said, no greater love has a man than to lay down his life for his friends. So that young American to my way of thinking, did something noble, but then that's because I believe in a God and I believe in an afterlife. Because if there is no afterlife, let's be real straight with each other. That young man did an extraordinarily foolish thing. Because if we're all the product of accidents, we know only the strong survive. See, if, if, if there's no reason to life, no purpose for our existence, then I, I would stand before you and, and I would preach, hey, get everything you can get out of life. On the other hand, do you believe that there was a God who created us? I believe it because I, I am a God follower. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm a God follower. I believe it because that is what the Bible tells me, but I believe it because it makes sense as well. I was having blood drawn this week, and I'll tell you, I learned a long time ago when I'm having blood drawn not to watch what's going on. <laughs> I don't think it's affecting me, but when I get up to walk away, I find out that it is because my knees are shaky. So I try to keep my mind on other things. The young lady was drawing blood. I, I just looked away, you know, and I started talking to her. Well, you know how I am. I started talking to her, and I just said, I, have you ever considered the miracle of blood? Because from that blood they were drawing, they were going to get all kinds of information about me. Do you realize that river of life that flows within your body? It contains libraries of information. It contains information that we don't even understand yet. But it isn't just your blood. Think about these magnificent organs in your head that we call eyes and how they interact with the brain. Think about your circulatory system. Think about your reproductive system. Think about all the systems of your body. And, and here's the thing. I always say this. I could understand perhaps how a philosopher might be an atheist, but I cannot understand how a scientist or a, someone in the medical world could be an atheist. There's just too much design. It's just too evident. See, the reason why many times people in our culture today don't want to go to the place of a creator is exactly where I'm about to go with this talk. Because if you accept the reality that we were created and designed, then there is a subsequent question. See, the reason why many in our secular world cannot accept the, the hypothesis of a creator is that if they ever accept that, it's where it must take them next. Because if indeed we are created by such a supreme being, then why did he create us and what does he expect from us? Design indicates purpose. Let me give you an example. When I was a kid growing up in South Texas on a hot afternoon in the summer, I'd look up at those big majestic clouds that would form in the sky. And I'd try to figure out what that cloud looked like. I'd see a cloud look like a horse. There was a cloud that looked like a house. There was a cloud that looked like a dog. There was a cloud that looked like the wreck of the Hesperus. I just looking up into those clouds, and I would see this and I would see that. But then, of course, the cl cloud would change and my image would go away. 
A year or so ago, I was coming out of that magnificent shopping experience that is Walmart, and I was in the parking lot (laughs) putting my basket away, and I looked up in the sky, and there was a sign that said, Air Show Today. Now, the moment I saw that, I knew that wasn't a random design. The guy misspelled it, but I, I, I could tell. That was intentional. See, guys, that's the whole thing I'm getting to. And I, I know I've, I've used a little bit of time this morning working through this concept, but, but isn't it true? I mean, look at yourself. Look at, look at your life. Ask yourself this question. Am I an accident or was I intentional? And if I was intentional, what was I designed for? I have to ask myself, do I believe that God designed me for conspicuous consumption? Do I believe that God designed me so that I could make myself live in ease and pleasure and fun and never do anything that requires sacrifices? Is that why God made me, or did God make me to make a difference in the world? I think the answer to that question is pretty easy. And it's one of the things that's framed my whole discussion, and it will for the next five weeks in this U Times 2 series. Could I ask you a question? What, what makes you feel best? Do you feel best when you go out and spend a lot of money and you get new stuff? Or do you feel best when you know that you have made a difference in somebody's life? I'm asking you for a moment. And maybe we don't have that feeling as often as we should, but what happens at that moment when you take your resources, your talents, your presence, and in somebody else's life, you make a difference in that world. And you see their eyes, and you see that look, and you see that look of gratitude, and sometimes almost pleading that says, thank you, without you, if you hadn't been here, my life would have been in the pits. When you, listen, I'm asking you, when you experience that, how do you feel? For me, the answer is exhilarating. Now, guys, I've worked through that whole concept for the last three, four, five minutes just to get to this one point. That feeling that you have when you make a difference in somebody's life, a positive difference, that is God corroborating his design. God designed us to make a difference in this world. I'm going to blow some of your minds with what I'm going to say right now. So many times through the years, people have asked me, in the 32 years I've been pastoring, people ask me, Mark, why do I have a tough time in this life? Why, why do good people have, have bad, bad things happen to them? And the answer is very simple. It doesn't get communicated very much from Christian stages or from religious stages, but here is the simple answer to that. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 5. It is simply this. We were not designed for this life. See, if you think this life is all it is, it'll never make sense. The Bible tells us we were designed for the life to come. God's been academically honest with us. He's been very upfront with us. He says that our life down here is few of days and filled with trouble. God is saying, as long as you live in, Jesus said, as long as you live in this life, you're going to have difficulty. It's the very nature of this world. And here is the part that's mind-blowing, and I'm still trying to wrap my arms around this and understand it because it's a challenge for me. This life is really kind of a proving ground. It's a place of testing. I mean, we're going to go to the big dance later and live forever. But in this short window of time that we're here on this planet, God intends for us to make a difference. If what you're hoping for is to get everything you want out of this life, it's going to be disappointing because here's the thing. We'll live our years, and for those of us who are anywhere close to my age or older, we've discovered that life goes lightning quick, and then after we're gone, they're pretty much going to forget us. This is a horrible story I read. There's a, a guy named Linda... Rogak, who wrote a book called Death Warmed Over. And it's a cookbook and sort of a sociological commentary on funeral meals in various cultures. And she opens her book with this wretched story. 
A guy is dying upstairs. He probably only has a few hours to live. But from the downstairs kitchen, he smells the, the wafting smell of chocolate chip cookies. Now, I, 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 I am trying to watch my weight. My, my wife, however, I went home from the service last night, and, and down in the basement, my wife had left out a whole plate of chocolate chip cookies for Stephen and his friends. I'm going to stop the story right there. I'm not... But anyway, this guy's lying in his, on his deathbed, and he smells chocolate chip cookies. And so he rolls out of bed, manages to roll down the stairs, crawls across the kitchen floor. He reaches up to get one of the chocolate chip cookies, only to feel the slap of the spatula. Put that down, his wife said. Those are for the funeral. <laughs> I can't imagine that that really happened. But there is a little truth there. You say, well, man, Mark, I am very popular in my school. Everybody thinks I'm, I've got the coolest car and these clothes and I'm the best attractive, most attractive person around. That has a way of passing. When you leave this life, all that's really going to matter is how much difference you make. Roll up your sleeves, we're going to work. This may be the most peculiar Easter message that you've ever heard unless you've been at New Spring for a long time. I want to ask you the question, are, are, you, are, are you up to this? I mean, think about you times two. Well, a few moments ago, we read the story. Let's go back to the story. In Jesus' story, there's a very wealthy guy. He's got millions of dollars. But these are long before the days of instant communication. Life requires for him to go on a long trip. He doesn't know how long he's going to be gone. And being gone means that he can no longer execute transactions or oversee the transactions that are executed in his name. But he's not worried because he's hired three money managers. Handpick them. He calls them all in. He said, guys, I've got to go away, and I want you to go out and make, make it happen for me. I'm going to leave you with some of my resources, and I want you to go out in the marketplace and do something good with them. So he calls them, and he said, guys, here's the thing. I've been watching you. I think I know what you're up to. And he called the first guy, and he said, hey, I'm leaving you with $5 million. That's about the amount. $5 million. He said, I've watched you. I know what you're up to. I'm going to leave $5 million with you. The second guy said, I, I've been watching you, and I think I know what you're up to. I'm going to leave you, leave you with $2 million. And to the third guy, he said, I, I've been watching you, and I'm leaving you with $1 million. Just go out and make it happen. A moment later, he's gone. And here are three guys with huge resources. Now, here is the question. Just how aggressive do they need to be? The first two guys answered that question because at once, Jesus said, they raced out. They didn't have any time to waste because every moment that they kept their master's money on the sidelines, it wasn't, it wasn't making any money. So they raced out, put it to work. But the third guy he started thinking about what he had been entrusted with and how much money it was. And he said, you know, markets are a place where, you know, where people lose money too. And he thought to himself, perhaps if I, if I lost the money, I would be accountable for that. And he didn't really want the, he didn't want the stress of riding the waves of an uncertain economy. So he decided that what he was going to do was to go out to the barn, get a shovel, dig a hole, wrap a million dollars up, and bury it in the ground. He did it, went inside the house, made himself a sandwich, turned on the television, let, sat down in the recliner, and went to sleep. We don't know how much time passed. 
Could have been days, most likely months, maybe even year plus. And the office has sort of settled into the paradigm of an absentee owner. You know how that is. But if you've ever had a boss or supervisor be gone for a long period of time, you know what it's like to hear that ripple of, you know, we saw his car in the parking lot. We saw her, you know, we saw her truck out there. And the ripple spread through the office. And, of course, when the manager walked in, the owner walked in, and rather everybody was, you know, clapping him on the back and shaking his hand and saying, sure, good to see you, sir. I hope you had a nice vacation. But that wasn't what he was there for. He was there to get information. He called those three managers in and said, okay, guys, tell me what I want to hear. The first guy stepped forward and said, sir, you left me with $5 million. I want you to know that I've gone out to the marketplace, I've invested your money carefully, and now I have five million more dollars. Now you have a total of ten. Now, if you're familiar with this text and have been for a long time, you're probably, you're probably familiar with an expression that was the response of the owner to this guy's performance, and that is well done, good and faithful servant. But it's really not, it's really not faithful to what the actual Greek words this guy used. What he basically said, and I'm going to paraphrase this, I think I'm, I think I'm right on accurate. What the guy said was, oh, I knew you were going to do that. It's, he said, I, I knew that this is just who you are. I, I, I'm, I'm delighted, but I'm not surprised. This is just who you are on the inside. And then he said, you know, from now on, you're no longer going to be a manager. We're going to put a sign on your door that says partner. And have you ever heard of profit sharing? I want you to share everything that belongs to me. Well, by that time, servant number two can't wait to give his report. I mean, he's seen the bounty that his partner has reaped, and so he steps forward and he says, sir, I, I didn't make $5 million like my buddy did here, but I went out and took the $2 million that you gave me, and I, I got $2 million more. And it's so interesting, and we're going to see this play out over the next five weeks as we talk about doubling our impact. The owner's response was identical. Even though the amount was not identical, his commendation was. He said, I just knew you. That's who you are. You couldn't do anything else. I, I'm, I'm delighted, but I'm not surprised. And you're going to be a partner too. From now on, you're a partner with me. You don't just work for me. You're my partner, and I'm going to share everything that I have with you. And the third guy's kind of kicking at the ground, and when he starts his report, he's mumbling. His voice is almost inaudible. The owner says, uh, speak up there. I, I didn't catch that. How, how much profit did you make? Isn't it amazing how underproductive people often have a ton of attitude? Well, to be honest, I really don't like working for you. You're not a fair boss. You expect more than you leave people with. So here's what I did. I went out and I dug a hole and I buried your money. But I want you to count it, sir. You'll see that not a penny is missing. You got everything that you ever left me with. And now I'm out of here. I'm no longer responsible. If he thought that that was going to mollify the owner, he couldn't have been more wrong. Because the owner said, and again, I'm going to appeal to the original words that he used. He said, number one, and, and this, is, this, is really exa- this, is, this is exactly the word that Jesus used. He said, you're a pain. I'm not going to finish the expression, but basically, I mean, that is exactly what Jesus, you're a pain. And you're slow. And you're fired. Take the resources from him. Give it to the top performer. 
for people who think that, you know, when people look at Jesus, if they're looking for egalitarianism or socialism, they're certainly looking in the wrong place. Because nothing could be further from the truth. It is so interesting to me that when Jesus tells this story, he prefaces it by saying, this is how heaven works. We've gotten a little passive in our culture. I was reading the other day where in, in an elementary school, kind of like field day as we used to call them, they had decided there would be no races or competitions because one of the little children might feel like he or she lost. This world doesn't work that way, and heaven doesn't work this way. I know this is a challenging message, especially for Easter. But is there anyone else like me today who feels like the times are precarious and the hour is late? God is looking for people who will double their impact. I want to give you five things, and I only have just a few minutes, so I'm going to just race through these. If you're a note taker, and also if you bought the journal, this stuff will be in there and a whole lot more. But I want to give you five things today. If you've listened to this talk and you said, okay, Mark, I'm one of those people. I'm not into conspicuous consumption, at least not after this morning. Um, I want to make a difference. I want to make an impact. How do I get started? Well, let me just start by saying... For the next five weeks, I'm going to be laying down the principles. And you could say, well, Mark, I'm not even sure I believe what you believe. Even if you never believe what I believe, I can promise you, you can leverage these principles and they will transform your life. We're going to talk about doubling your impact. But today, I just want us to build a foundation, all right? For the next 10 minutes, we're going to build a foundation. Five things. Five things. Number one, here's the first thing. Set your goal to be all you can be. That was a commercial. I think the Army used that slogan. I love that commercial. Every time I heard it, be everything you can be. Whenever I do a deal, a financial deal, if I'm buying a car or something, it just grieves me if I think I've left money on the table. Anybody else like me? I'm sort of obsessive compulsive anyway, and, and if I think I've left $1,000 on the table, it'll eat on me for years. Well, money's not important. But wouldn't it be tragic to get to the end of our lives and leave life on the table, to leave impact on the table? Well, we could have been so much more. And so here's what we have to do. If we're really going to be serious about this, we've got to look ourselves in the eyes and look in the mirror and say, from now on, I am determined that I am not going to settle. I'm not going to let somebody tell me that I have reached my capacity. I am determined that I'm going to be everything I can be. Okay, the next one is a little bit more complicated, and I'm going to take just a few moments with this one. But as a leader for years, I believe that success sits on a tripod. If you want to be a success at anything in life, you're going to need three things. And like I said, it's a tripod. If one leg is missing, there's a challenge, there's an issue. But there are three things that all of us need to be a success in any area of our lives. If you want to be everything you can be, you've got to watch for those three things. When they converge, when they all come together, you've got success. Here's the first one. Ability. Ability. Ability is that marvelous combination of talent and personal development. Talent, let's talk about that for a moment. Talent is just the stuff that you're good at naturally. The stuff, the hard comes easy. That's talent. And talent is as mysterious as the mysterious God who gives it to us. Who can explain why some of you are really good at making money? Who can explain why some of you are very artistic? Who can explain why some of you are just naturally good at sales? Man, you, you could sell heaters on the equator. Well, who can explain that? Guys, it's God. God gives us all. I mean, just like this owner left resources with all three of his managers, 
God is leaving us with resources, talent. My sons are all very musical. And my oldest, Jonathan, has got this incredible ear, and he always has since he's been a kid. And now, in his young adulthood, he writes and arranges music. He is phenomenal. And what amazes me about Jonathan is that if he has it in his head, he can sit down and produce it on the keyboard. He can just think up something in his head, and wow, there it is. Voila, perfectly. I remember when he was a little kid. He, he, he was astounding. And I asked him, I'm a musician. I've played musical instruments since I was very small, but I don't have that kind of ear. And I asked him one time, Jonathan, how do you know the notes to play? He said, I don't know. I just do. That's the nature of talent. But a lot of people try to skate by on talent, don't they? You may know some of them. They're very disappointing people. You look at them and you say, wow, you could be so much more. But they just try to skate by on talent. Talent's nothing if it's not developed. Personal development means that you spend time and you're a student of your talent and you hone your skills. I got a lesson on this many years ago at our old location. A woman in our church is a marvelous instrumentalist. And one morning she played a beautiful solo. And people were coming up and thanking her for her, for her, for her music. And I remember this one particular lady, I was close enough, I was within earshot, I could hear this exchange. One lady walked up to her and said, well, my, my, miss, you are very, very talented. And this young woman graciously but firmly said, what you heard today wasn't talent, what you heard today was hard work. Ability. Number two, opportunity. Opportunity is God opening the door for ability. Remember, God has designed you. God has designed you for greatness. It is natural for him. If you are faithful to develop your abilities, God will open doors of opportunity for you. And then thirdly, and here's the catalyst, not only ability and opportunity, passion. Passion is that drive. It is that that feeling, that intense craving that demands action. So when those three things come together, ability, opportunity, and passion, that's when you and I have success. Now, for just about three or four minutes here, I want to talk about when a leg is missing. Because if we're not as successful as we need to be in life, if we're not making the kind of difference we need to make, the reason for that is we have a leg missing. So let's consider the combinations. Suppose you have passion and opportunity, but not the ability. You, you want to do something very badly. You have a craving to do it, and the need is there, but you're just not up to it yet. You don't feel like you have the ability. Well, let's think about that for just a moment. Chances are you're not going to receive a whole new talent package. But it could be that God is calling you to develop the talents that you have. And by the way, if that's the situation, are you open to being nominated for an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor or Best Supporting Actress because it could be that God is calling you to help somebody who does have the talent in order to affect success. Second combination. Let's say you have passion and you have ability, but the opportunity's not there. This one's a piece of cake. This is just God managing the schedule. When I was a kid growing up, and this I'm really old, and, and for those of you who are young, you're, you're not going to have any idea what I'm talking about. But long before we had the remote con- controlled cars and stuff for toys, we used to have what we call friction power toys. And basically, there, there was no power, it's just friction. You, you would race the car like this with a truck on the ground, you know, you rev it, rev it, rev it, rev it, rev it, and then you'd set it down and let it go. If you have passion, and if there is a need, 
and there doesn't seem to be that opportunity, you may feel that revving going on. You're saying, wow, I want to do this. I believe God is leading me to do this, but I just don't have the opportunity. Well, God's just revving you up, and I promise you, he will set you down at just the right time when the opportunity, when the need is just right. I've always said I've never had any trouble with God's will for my life. His timetable drives me nuts because he's either moving slower than I want him to move or faster than I want him to move, but whenever I look back, his timing is always perfect. Abraham Lincoln made this statement after a dismal failure. He said, I will study and prepare myself, and someday my chance will come. The third thing, and maybe the the toughest, and as a leader and as someone who's staffed through the years, this one has probably disappointed me many times. And that's when somebody has the ability and the need, the opportunities there, but not the passion. I may be talking to somebody here this morning, and you know that you need to be making a difference. You know right where you need to make a difference. You, you could do it. It's within your grasp. It's within your power. You have the talent, and you have, you've developed the talent. You could step in instantly and make a difference, but you just don't want to anymore. You don't have the passion. At the risk of being very personal, could I ask you, What broke your heart? What tore your insides out? Just as you have a God who loves you, you have an enemy who hates you, and his currency is discouragement. Could I encourage you to go back to the God who made you? I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but could you pray a prayer that goes something like this? Lord, my life doesn't depend upon people. I don't have to listen to my critics. I don't have to listen to the people who told me I would never matter to make any difference or matter. You made me. You designed me. You designed me for impact. Bring back that passion that I used to have. I have two minutes to tell you three things. Number three. When I was, going, when I was in college, I was working my way through college. I worked for a men's clothing store. I love to sell But there were two afternoons a year that I didn't like at all because we actually closed the store down to take inventory. Anybody ever take inventory? Oh, man, that's tedious work. You have to count everything. What I want to encourage you to do, and this is a strange exercise, but I I bet many of us have never done it. Have you ever sat down with a piece of paper and asked yourself just what are my abilities? What am I good at? I want to encourage you to take inventory of your talents. I I honestly believe this. Maybe I'm wrong, but I believe you'll be surprised. If you'll just sit down and think, what comes next? What is the hard that is easy for me? Then take it to the next level. What are the resources that I have? What's the money I have? What's the time that I have? What are the opportunities that I have? Inventory those opportunities. Number four, avoid the trap of comparison. These three guys, you know, the manager who represents God, he didn't give the guys the same thing. He gave one guy five million, one guy two million, the third guy one million. If they had wanted to, they could have gotten all distracted by comparing and seeing who got more and who got less. Let me just say this. If you're a five-talent person, and some of you are, don't fall into the trap of feeling superior. If God's given you a lot of talent, if you've got a big talent base, you just have more responsibility. Most of us are probably going to feel like we're in that two-talent category, right? That's about where we are. Or one, maybe maybe you can say, well, Mark, I'm just pretty klutzy, man. I'm all thumbs, and and I trip over my own feet, and, and I'm just, you know. Hey, 
You know, even the guy who had one talent, that's still a million dollars. Anybody ever ask you to manage a million dollars? If so, good for you. Two things. Superiority will mess up our relationships. Insecurity will cause us to dig a hole and bury our resources. So avoid the trap of comparison. Number five. Embrace the honor of being trusted. Long before this owner gave his resources to his successful managers, he gave them something else very important. He gave them his trust. Guys, when you open up this book, this book is, is God saying, trust me, trust him. But I want you to consider something for a moment. Your talents and your resources were given to you so that you could leverage them and change the world. God trusts you. It's an honor to be trusted. It's such an honor that begs the question, how do I respond to that trust? Well, today I've just laid the foundation. I hope that, I hope that I've like encouraged you to, to come back for the next four weeks because we're going to be laying down the principles of how to become twice your impact. I'm not talking about working twice as hard. Most of us have too little margin already. I'm talking about making twice the difference because it's so huge. When I was prepping for this message, I couldn't help but think about a person in my life who's made a dramatic impact. My grandmother was a farm woman, never left South Texas too many times. But she had a huge impact on my life and my family's life. She grew up in the most awful circumstances. Her father had abandoned the family when she was very young. Her mother was embittered by that. I don't, the only thing I remember about my great-grandmother is what her flower bed looked like because the mood, the, the feeling inside the house was so bitter, I didn't even want to go in the house. That's all I remember about my great-grandmother. As a child, my, my grandmother was left to care for her, younger, her two younger siblings. She married when she was a teenager. Married a, a man who was, my grandfather was a hard worker, but wasn't a God follower early in his adult life. And so he didn't really understand the priorities at times that my grandmother had. But my grandmother began raising nine children, her nine children, when her world was in the throes of the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl. She had everything going against her. Tough upbringing, tough life, tough world. But somehow she managed to change the atmosphere and make an impact. She led each of her nine children into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And beyond that, I can tell you all nine of those kids were infused by my grandmother with a sense that each of them had a role in the wonderful and dramatic things that God was doing in his world. She was the most positive person I have ever met in my life. And it wasn't a positive, like, things are going to be nicer, Pollyannish kind of thing. It was positive based on a confidence in her God and her love for Jesus. Out of those nine kids, three are pastors, including my father. There was one who was a professor in a Christian college. Three of her daughters sang in a Christian singing group. All nine are committed believers. Twenty-three in my generation. Many of us are in ministry. Some of you may have seen or heard my cousin Anita Renfro, who's a Christian comedian and a writer and an author who also writes about my grandmother. Just an extraordinary lady, a farm woman, and yet the difference. I mean, she infused within all of us as grandchildren. I mean, she made me think I was going to be the next Billy Graham. I mean, I didn't really think that, but she kept telling me that anyway. 
when our family gets together on the rare occasions that we get to get together, it is so interesting because we're only there for a few minutes and then the, the grandma stories will start. And I'm not talking about just the cute grandma like that. I'm talking about the life-impacting stuff. Here's an example. One of my cousins was telling me she was going through a really, really difficult time with some of her family challenges, and, and she said she was just devastated and went to sleep one night. And in her dream, she said, Grandma came to her and said, Dixie, it's going to be okay because I prayed for you. And the tears just streamed out her face because that was the kind of impact that she made on us. Who made that kind of impact or who's making that kind of impact in your life? Isn't it important to you to follow that person's example? Okay, I, I know. I, I'm, I live in the world you live in. It. I realize what some of you may be thinking right now. Some of you are saying, Mark, that person has not showed up in my life yet, and I'm bitter about that. I've never had anybody who made the kind of impact and sacrifice in your life that your grandmother made. As I close my talk today, do you know what hit me as I prepped for this message? She didn't have that person in her life. But instead of sitting around and waiting for somebody to have an impact on her, she chose to have an impact on others. And she broke long-standing chains of previous generations and she continues to impact the lives of generations she never lived to see. That's impact. And we're going to talk about doubling it. You times two. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for what we've learned today. We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And we honor you as Savior and Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Just one more thing, please. Just a moment of prayer. It could be that you're here today and you've never invited Jesus to come into your life. Maybe you've thought that God is all about religion. I assure you he's not. God is about a personal relationship. That's why Jesus died. Simply put, Jesus died on the cross so that your sins could be paid for. His death became a payment for your sins. We sang, it is finished, as a lyric in a song. That's what Jesus said. When he finished dying, your sins were paid for, past, present, and future. Three days later, he proved he was who he said he was by walking out of the grave under his own power. Nobody else has ever done that. And here's the thing. God so desperately wants a relationship with you that he has made it a free gift. It will not cost you anything. You don't have to work or anything in order to have a relationship with God. It's such a gift. Jesus paid for it. All you have to do is ask for it. Believe that Jesus died for your sins. Believe that he arose from the grave and ask him to come into your life. And I know it's an act of faith and it sounds strange, but God will keep his word to you. I know he's kept it to me and to so many others. If you've never prayed to receive Christ, I'm going to pray a prayer and we'll pray it slowly and you have a chance to just repeat this after me. But on this Easter, this is a great day to do this. If you've never invited Jesus into your life, let's do it right now. I'll pray, I'll pray these words slowly. Think about them. If you mean them from your heart, Jesus will hear. Lord Jesus, I know I've done wrong. I ask you to forgive me and save me. I believe you died for me. I believe you arose from your grave. Thank you for making me God's child. In Jesus' name, amen. Biggest decision of your life, if you just pray with me.
Guys, I have a gift. I know that happens so quickly. I've got a gift that I prepared for you. It's got some DVDs and cool stuff in it that helps you know what it means to know Jesus. The gift won't cost you anything. When you came in today, you got a worship folder. Part of it's detachable. If you just pray with me to receive Christ, if you will, would you just put your name and address on there? Check the box that says you prayed to receive Christ. If you drop this in the offering bag or in the boxes back there, I'll mail this to you this week. If you have just a few extra seconds, you can actually take it home with you today. Right beyond that middle door, there are two zones called Guest Services and New Spring Store. If you just pray with me to receive Christ, you can just take this back. They won't ask you any questions or embarrass you. All you got to do is just say, hey, I pray with Mark. They'll give this to you today, and you can get started following Jesus. Guys, I'm in overtime. Uh, but next week, we're going to jump back into this, and we're going to start laying down the principles in which you can double your impact.